0: Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network.
1: And now another no-brainer money-saving tip from Progressive. Marcus, what happened? <sighs> I was changing my oil when I spilled some on the floor.
0: Oh, well, use these $50 bills to wipe it up. Perfect. Got any more? Yeah, yeah, take a couple hundred.
1: Stop. Instead of using money, use an old rag. And here's a better tip from Progressive on how not to waste money. Don't pay too much for car insurance. Drivers who switch and save could save hundreds. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates. Potential savings will vary. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the all music books podcast where we speak with authors of music books, bios, history, criticism, cultural takes, and everything in between. I'm your host, Steve J. Today's guest is Bill Nowlin, who wrote a book called Vinyl Ventures, My 50 Years at Rounder Records. Welcome Bill. Glad to be here. So two roots music enthusiasts meet at Tufts University in the sixties. They share record collections. They see live music together, and Rounder Records is born. Was it that easy?
0: In a way, I guess it was, because we didn't set out to start a business. It was just something we put out a couple records, and it grew. One might say organically from there. Not having any particular ambitions, not having any business plan, anything could go wrong, but more things went right than wrong.
1: And uh,
0: it evolved with a lot of help from an
1: awful lot of people and a lot of hard work. So what exactly was the early rounder in your view? It wasn't a business, obviously, and you mentioned that a few times in your book. It was more of a collective, I guess, but how did you guys see this? I call it a
0: hobby that got out of control. We were all graduate students pursuing other Things. Marianne was a graduate student in history, uh, Ken in early childhood education, and myself in political science. You know, it was early on. So, what we envisioned our ultimate careers might be mine was teaching. I actually started as a, uh, a professor of political science, what's now the University of Massachusetts at Lowell, the very month before our first two records came out. But, uh, you know, what we would have done otherwise, I don't know. We might have started off on those careers and we might have stayed there or something else might have happened. But we put out two records that first year, October 1970. Then we put out three the following year. But this wasn't a large number of records. It was kind of a hobby in some ways. The third year that we put out 19 albums, that was beginning to become something very different.
1: Definitely. And it was strictly an on-the-job learning experience, printing, invoicing, especially distribution. You know, the record industry for independent labels was very, very different in those days. It was kind of the wild, wild west, wasn't it? There were people that had come before us. There were four or five other small
0: independent labels that we kind of modeled ourselves after. One that was sizable was Folkways Records, Another was Arhuli that maybe had, I don't know, 40 or 50 albums out at that time. I'm not really sure. They both used four-digit numbering systems. So that's why we started with Rounder 0001. It wasn't that we knew we would ultimately put out over 1,000 albums, though we did. It just was a numbering system that we adopted because we had to start someplace and One's usually the first thing, but we put three digits in front of it. And you mentioned invoicing. Uh, I mean, I, I do often tell the story about the first day I dropped off five copies of each of our first two albums at a local record store. They said, be sure to send us an invoice. And I nodded like I knew what they were talking about. But we were in another world. We were hippies at the time, I guess, and academics. And even a very standard business term like invoice didn't mean a thing to me. But I knew I would send them a bill. I just didn't realize that it was synonymous with invoice.
1: In the early years, especially you and Ken were on the road a lot, you know, traveling around to music festivals and selling the music there. And the music was not especially commercial. A lot of, you know, folk and bluegrass especially. Yet you found an audience. Was it bigger than you all had thought?
0: I don't think so. I don't think we thought about the size at the time. We just sort of did it. It definitely was not commercial music. There was uh, never a time that we really decided to, okay, let's go to head to head with the major labels or something of that sort. We had some albums over time that they would have loved to have signed. And we had some artists that moved on to major labels, some that moved on and then came back again. There was a small but large enough group of people that were like us, that were into this kind of music. We only put these out because we couldn't buy these records, so we put them out. Then, you know, we developed a little bit of a, a feeling how this, this was kind of fun. I mean, in college, I started the Humor Magazine at one point, and we just made up a, a couple hundred copies of Think and sold them for 10 cents each or something of that sort. It was just kind of beginning entrepreneur or something of that sort. Uh, it, it hooked us a little bit because we got such positive feedback. This is great. You know, what are you going to do
1: next? You were in a position where, you know, often you'd be finding records, but, you know, very quickly you would start recording them yourselves in the studio, right? Yeah, well, the first
0: album was one that we bought for $125 that was previously recorded and somebody uh, didn't put it out, so we did. But the second one that came out that same day was one we did record ourselves. We recorded half of it at the MIT college radio station and half of it at Harvard's radio station. The total cost for that album was $7, which was the cost of two seven-inch reels of audio tape. That was quarter-inch thick tape uh, at the time. And that was the cost because the colleges let us use the studio for free.
1: Yeah, and very much a, a passionate arena too. I remember reading about your first art director, who was a, a graphic designer. But you know, he just you know, like a lot of us, he just thought designing an album cover was the greatest thing in the world. So he he just said, "I'll do all these for free." And like, you yeah, know, he
0: didn't know how many we were going to put out eventually. That's awesome. But he did do uh, several of them. And and as I said, we had an awful lot of people help us. People you know write liner notes without asking to get paid for them. Well, you designed a few albums yourself, and over the over the years around you. we had you on payroll. <laughs> he, had, you know, he built himself a little portfolio. He was already a graphic designer at Boston University, so he was on their payroll, and he just did this in his spare time because he loved music, and uh, it gave him something. More than, better than designing college catalogs or something.
1: Right. It is that kind of mythic experience. You know, you tell people you do that and they're like, wow. And of course, yeah, you know, that's kind of gone for good now, which is sad. But another story. You know, you mentioned uh, our Hooli and uh, Folkways and some other uh, independent labels. And so there was definitely a group of them. And I know Sweet Honey and the Rock is an early band that Rounder wanted to sign. And they ultimately went to Flying Fish, which is a small label. And they thought that the label was more, quote, promotionally oriented. And Rounder had very tight budgets, as we've said. But this feedback pushed Rounder across another threshold. Is that right? Yes. There was a few years into the label. I had
0: gone to the University of Chicago uh, for graduate work and met Bruce Kaplan out there, uh, who helped run the University of Chicago Folk Festival. And he was said he was thinking about starting a record label, and so we met up again a, a couple of years later after we got our first couple albums out, and talked about what he people he was thinking about recording. We talked about who we were thinking about recording, and decided to just join forces. So he joined us and helped finance a bunch of albums. Uh, and after a year or so, he was living in Chicago. The three of us were all living in the same apartment in Somerville, Massachusetts. He just decided he you know he he needed to run his own company. And that made perfect sense. So we worked out a way that he could disengage, start flying fish records. And one of the early acts he signed was Sweet Honey and the Rock, who we would have loved to have recorded. But they went with him because they had a sense, correctly, that he was putting more effort into uh, marketing than we were. And so it kind of woke us up. You know, it's not just enough to put out a record, but there were musicians that were trying to make a living at this. And it meant something to them to have somebody promoting them rather than just putting out an album and then going on to the next one.
1: Well, it's interesting because it is this more business-oriented approach that helped to define the roles with the three rounder founders and, and how they would work at the label. Isn't that right? Yeah, we uh,
0: developed over time different specialties. Ken was had more patience or whatever. Uh, he was better working in the studio. And, and he developed to become a very good AR man, artist and repertoire, which meant that he would identify a song and then... It was sticking his mind. And then we'd be talking to another group further down the road. And he said, you know, this would be a good song for you to think about recording. And so he has matched up a lot of songs with groups. Marion became uh, more adept at uh, promotion, publicity and promotion. So she developed contacts with radio stations and with newspapers and publications. And I was more in the, the back room doing more of the business details. I was in the back room, but overseas too. It was kind of weird. I did all the royalty calculations, for instance. One of the things we really wanted to do is make sure that artists got paid the right amount so that we would never be accused of cheating an artist, because there was a lot of that that was at least alleged about other labels at the time, valid or not, I don't know. And then I helped build up an overseas distribution network. We all started and formed a thing called the National Association of Independent Record Distributors. Right within the first couple of years, because we needed to work through people in Kansas City, a distributor in Chicago and somebody that would help sell our records in Southern California. We had no contacts with stores there. So, uh, And there were distributors that we found because these other labels like our or county records would be, we all went to Chicago, called several men, and we formed a national organization that sort of rationalized this.
1: Well, the distribution network, and we'll get into a little bit of that later, also. But that's one of the things, you know, that I mentioned at the beginning about kind of the wild, wild west, because there was some smaller ones, and the I think Nared is the abbreviation for the the one that you just mentioned, isn't that right? Nared, yeah, yeah. That definitely helped independent labels quite a bit, and that was very early on.
0: Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, we drove out in a car with a, two guys had another small label in Cambridge, and we got to uh, Chicago. It was around 1972, I think. It really made a big difference to have people willing to locally in in these different regions represent your records, just as we represented right near the very beginning. we you know, we had stores that would say, well, we can't just buy two records from you. you have to go through a distributor. And so uh, we're a distributor. Well, what are you distributing? <laughs> and uh, so you know we knew these other labels, and we said, How about if we represent you? And
1: uh, it grew from there. And, and grow you did, and you f- you know you definitely figured out the business. And at the beginning, it was smaller records that that had a very distinct and loyal fan base. And then as things started to move, you grew. And as you figured it out, and, and this would probably be the second half of the '70s, uh, which would bring a lot of change, both in the business sense, but also with the music sense. Beginning really with George Thorogood and the Destroyers, who would dramatically change Rounder. No.
0: Yeah, that catapulted uh, us to a different level in terms of people being aware of Rounder and the attention of. We'd we you know we'd had other albums like uh, the first Norman Blake album we did. Uh, there was a uh, J.D. Crowe in the New South album that became a, a very classic bluegrass album that came out in 75. Uh, there were albums that broke through and sold into uh, four digits instead of just a few <sighs> hundred. They'd sell a few thousand. And they, both the Norman and the J.D. album passed the 10,000 point. Uh, in terms of sales gradually, not just all at once, but uh, over time it it built. And fortunately, because we didn't have any money except the money that we recirculated in the company itself. So if we had had a hit early on, we wouldn't have been able to handle it. Hmm. George Thurgood album ultimately became a gold record, which is 500,000 copies. Obviously, a whole different category. That first album really took two years to build to that point. Our first pressing was 3,000 copies. And we didn't know how they'd sell because we, we just had no idea. He had been turned down by every record company. We didn't know it was different. It was rock and rhythm and blues sort of different from the, more of the bluegrass and folk, maybe some Cajun music and stuff that we had done. So we didn't know if we'd have a negative reaction from some of our fan base. It sold, it sold steadily enough, but grew quickly enough that we could handle it. Then uh, it just took off.
1: Yeah. And that's interesting, because I know you write in the book that you were a little bit worried that it was too commercial. But on the, on the flip side, there was definitely a continuum there. Some of the songs that he covered were blues standards and these kinds of things, but just a different presentation. And you all went to see him live. Isn't that right?
0: Yeah. There was a guy that drove our early childhood school bus for the Head Start program. He kept talking to us about, you got to go see this guy, George Thorogood. We said, yeah, yeah, thanks, John. You know, whatever. And he was a big record doctor. Every Friday, he'd come with his paycheck and buy records from us. Then George, who had been here with his band in the Boston area, moved back home to Delaware. So, you know, we never did see him. But John Forward, this this guy, booked him for a show to come back to Somerville. And he said, okay, listen, I'm paying for this guy to come back here. I really believe in him. And I I really think you guys like him. So I'm booking him a mile from your house (laughs) in the local VFW hall. I want you to come see him. So I did, and like three songs into the two, three songs into the show, I got Ken on the phone and said, "Ken, you got to get up here too. This is uh, this is really amazing, you know." And we liked George and the band as individuals too. It wasn't, you know, we liked the music. I, I we'd always been Rolling Stones fans, and and they kind of came from the same background as the Rolling Stones. Some white guys that really got into uh, the blues the uh but we we just like them as individuals too and we we thought we could get along which we still do
1: <laughs> oh that's great but 1978 then sees the follow-up of move it on over which was just massive i i remember buying that in high school and i hadn't heard a of records i was down in miami and it's like who is this label but i'd heard that record and you know it was a game changer
0: yeah that record started off big but by that time we had already anticipated that and uh we still had a lot of help, though. The pressing plant was in Phoenix, Arizona. The place that we used was called Wakefield Manufacturing. I think our initial orders there were maybe 30 or 40, 50,000. But they could see that the reorders coming in. And they anticipated that. They, When they had slow time, even though we hadn't placed a reorder yet, they just pressed up some extra copies themselves in the faith and belief that we would be coming back for more, which we were. But instead of placing an order and them telling us, okay, we'll we'll have them ready for you next week, they said, good, we'll ship them out today because they already had them made up. (laughs) And and that really helped us look good to the the distributors because they could fill their orders more quickly.
1: And probably to the band as well, you
0: know. Yeah, to the band and and the public got the records they wanted.
1: (laughs) So it's around this time, there's a great story in the book, and and I wonder if you could tell it. Uh, And that's the night that the destroyers were playing across the street from another mm-hmm. band in Georgetown. And I, I'm not sure how this happened, but it's a great promo idea.
0: It was just booked that way. The Destroyers were playing on one side of the street and the band called the Nighthawks were playing on the other side of the street in another club. They both play very similar kind of music, some of the same songs. And so they they conspired between the, the two, the band leaders, George and uh, Mark Winter. They got these extra long chords and they started playing the same song. And then they each came out the front door of the respective clubs. They both came out and met in the middle of the street. And by that time they'd gotten in sync. So they were playing the same song together and they swapped guitars and each went back into the opposite club so that the people across the street, all of a sudden it was George Thorogood that came in playing the guitar.
1: It's brilliant. It's one of my favorite stories. It was. I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. <laughs> So Thorgood would eventually tour, you mentioned the Stones, he would tour with the J. Band and the Stones. What kind of challenges and opportunities did this present to Rounder?
0: Well, the first time he got a chance to tour with the Rolling Stones, he had to turn them down because he had started a thing called the 50 and 50 tour, where he, for some reason, decided he wanted to play every one of the 50 United States one night after the other. So 50 nights in 50 states. So he went to Hawaii, then he flew to Alaska, and then to Oregon without a night off. And then in Oregon, then they drove to Washington, to Idaho, to Montana. They had it worked out that without any nights off, that's seven weeks and one day, they toured 50 consecutive nights, and every night they played a different state. And when they got to the Washington, to Washington of District of Columbia, that isn't a state. So they played two shows that day. <laughs> Uh, afternoon show and an evening show in Maryland, and but they got a call, uh, you know, partway into it, that the Rolling Stones would like to have, invite them to join their 1981 tour, and uh, they had to say, "Well, <laughs> we can't stop this. You know, this is something that somebody else will steal the idea if we don't do it," which we kind of doubt, but this was, who, who would be that crazy? But <laughs> basically, right, they took a couple of days off after the uh, they finished the 50th state and, and immediately joined the the rest of the Rolling Stones tour, and then the next summer when the Stones toured Europe. The one I remember the most was soon after they joined the tour in late 81, they played the Los Angeles Coliseum. Now, George, when we first saw him, was playing to about 20, 25 people. Uh, This was 100,000 people. I mean, it's it's, uh, a a gigantic venue. Uh, And the opening band was Prince. And then there was George Storgrad and the Destroyers, then the Jay Giles Band, and then the Rolling Stones. And Prince got booed off the stage. I mean, the other three bands all sound similar, and Prince doesn't really fit that mold, so to speak. So he got booed off the stage, and I can remember being backstage and seeing him come off, and Bill Graham, the promoter, he was like 20 feet away or something. I could hear him say... In a sense, if you don't get back out there and finish your set, you'll never play in this town again. <laughs> and Prince turned around. They did it. People were throwing shoes at him and all kinds of stuff. And But he went out and finished up. And and then, uh, you know, George Surgood came out and the crowd that was primed for that kind of music was was happy.
1: That's an incredible bill, though. I mean, they, they just don't do that anymore. You know, I mean, you're lucky yeah. if you get two good bands. Yeah, that's that's a hell of a bill. We're speaking with Bill Nowlin, the author of Vinyl Ventures, my 50 years at Rounder Records. Rounder had a little bit of a reputation, or at least in the industry, it's kind of, you know, catalog. You always hear that word associated with them, and maybe that's because of the way you started. But you would also work with NRBQ, which had an incredibly devoted following, but they also kind of fit that mix of updated, you know, the sounds that first drew you in. Is that fair?
0: Yeah. I mean, by that time, George Storbert had broken. So we had shown that a certain kind of act, we could help them and not get in their way, maybe, uh, and, you know, have, have a decent audience. So a group like NRBQ, they were, you know, pretty much iconoclasts themselves, musically and personally. You know, if it had been earlier, maybe they wouldn't have taken us seriously. Uh, but they, they approached us. I think they had, had started doing some stuff on their own label. it started a label called Red Rooster Records. They wanted to try to do a little bit better. I guess they'd been on Mercury at one point, but got dropped. And we were at the right place at the right time for them. Maybe it—it it was. We really enjoyed working with them. They uh, I don't know, I must have done about eight or nine albums eventually.
1: 1981 also saw the launch of Heartbeat Records, whom I'm a huge fan of. You licensed some of those records, and they would become standard bearers, but you also decided to record a live album. It's Skateland Roller Disco, which was way ahead of its time.
0: Yeah, it was. Uh, that was definitely an interesting event. Mm-hmm. But when we started, um, the movie The Harder They Come and Come Around, and it was played in Cambridge every weekend for a year or two. And so I got, kind of got hooked on reggae uh, from that movie we had a couple people in the area that really did know reggae music and uh and so joined with us and we had like two three people that hadn't been part of rounder that kind of joined in most of the albums that we put out on heartbeat over time were licensed partly for ideological reasons because they were financed and therefore owned by the musicians themselves and that way in a sense we were never going to get criticized for exploiting then, because they retained the ownership, we just paid them for the copies we sold. This one guy had this idea to record a live DJ session, which were the, uh, you know, it was kind of the beginning of rap music. Yep. Picked up on that DJ uh, person running the turntable and and talking or singing over it. It was quite an event. We put it on at this place that was really a, a roller skating rink. It was Kingston. It was not way out in some tourist area like Montego Bay. This was downtown Kingston, gritty. Really area uh, and downtown. And we had to hire two guys with guns to uh, deter. Nothing ever happened. It wasn't for us per se, but the musicians were there. There was some sound equipment that we had rented from a, a local guy. It was just to protect the venue, so to speak.
1: I'm sure. 81, that's it. That's early. And, uh, you know, the Studio One catalog reissues would place Heartbeat at the front of the pack. And, you know, I was proud to work on some of those. And that, to me, is just bedrock music that really, you know, captures a lot of your your first philosophical ambitions.
0: Yeah, I, I mentioned a couple of people that had joined in. Uh, Duncan Brown was one of them. Uh, the main guy was Chris Wilson. And he became a, basically the head of Heartbeat Records in a way for many years. He grew up in Jamaica. He'd spent the first 14 or 15 years of his life in Jamaica. Actually, I guess he went to high school there and then came to the United States when it was time for university. But he knew this music as a teenager, as he'd grown up with this music. And he worshipped Clement Dodd, who was the head of uh, of Studio One. Had, he had his main office in Brooklyn, New York. And I, I went down with, with Chris and we met with him and we put out a, a first record, The Best of Studio One. And then we put out Best of Studio One volume two. And eventually over time, I think we probably put out 35, 40 albums from just their back catalog, working with them, plus some of some other producers as well. I mean, we're talking now in 2021, Heartbeat hasn't put out a record for 10 years or more, but Chris is still working with Carol Dodd, who is uh, Cox and Dodd's daughter. They are still working on uh, marketing Studio One records.
1: Essential listening, and shout out to Chris Wilson and to Josh Blood as well, who, uh, who was his assistant. They did uh, some great work. 1986 would see the signing of the artist perhaps most associated with Rounder and whom you would have a relationship for 30 years. How was Alison Krauss discovered? Ken
0: had a cassette. He listened to demo tapes better than Marion or I did. You know, we all, people sent, this band sent us tapes, usually cassettes in those days, audio cassettes, to listen to if they were hoping that we might put out a record of them. I might listen to the first track or maybe a little bit of the second track. And if it didn't grab me right away, I would kind of, you know, go on to something else. I was more, really more on the business side anyhow. But Ken felt maybe duty bound or just, I mean, it paid off in a case like this. This was a fifth track of a cassette. He heard Allison's voice and it was a bluegrass band, but she didn't sing on the first four songs. And when it got to the fifth track, there she was. And he just instantly said, wow, you know, who's that? And made a few phone calls and so forth. And uh, she was 14 years old at the time, you know, ended up talking to her mother and uh, they uh, agreed to do an album. You know, parents had to sign it instead of her, because she was a minor We couldn't be uh, violating child labor laws, although they were there's probably a dozen artists that we signed when they were teenagers. Bayla Fleck, Mark right. O'Connor. We also signed some people that were 80 years old too, <laughs> old traditional banjo players and stuff.
1: You know, it takes a, a lot of uh, guts and fortitude. I'm sure nobody thought that this 14 year old fiddle prodigy would win 27 Grammy awards.
0: Right. I mean, this, it was just this year Beyonce finally surpassed her for the most Grammys by a, a female artist. Amazing. Allison has had that. Distinction for ten years or so, and she just doesn't record as much as she used to. Maybe and mm-hmm. Beyonce is pretty well known. I've heard of her. Yeah,
1: you know another person I've heard of is Robert Plant, who was the former lead singer of Led Zeppelin, and Allison would record a duet album with him. How did that project come about?
0: I think that I was there at the first genesis of it. There was a show at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland to honor Led Billy. They invited Robert Plant, who had recorded some belly or the belly-ish music at one point but also allison and i'm not actually sure why allison got invited but the two of them met during the show and then i can remember getting on the bus going back to the hotel and the two of them starting to talk to each other a little more and i, I think that's where it came from is certainly the first time they met i had no idea what they were talking about i was <laughs> i wasn't involved in that the first album raisings hand came out in the year 2008 and that sold you know, lots of copies. It won the Grammy for Record of the Year and Album of the Year. And it's extremely rare that the same artist or artists would win both Grammys in the same year, but that happened that very year.
1: And I think if memory serves, there are five more Grammys associated with that record, weren't there? Uh,
0: yeah, there, there's more than those two, but those are the two big ones. <laughs> yes, of course, of course.
1: And I'm proud to have worked on that record. And I distinctly remember conference calls with Robert Plant, Alison Krauss, and the photographer Pamela Springsteen, who yeah. has a famous musician brother. And, you know, I'm sitting there on this conference call thinking this is a good day at work.
0: And you probably met Robert when he came over to the studio to
1: the Rounder Warehouse at one point. The offices. A delightful guy, and and I remember uh, going to Fenway Park with Allison when she sang at the national anthem. Or he did. Yeah, she was in overalls and couldn't have been more at ease, and just a a wonderful person. We're speaking with Bill Nowlin, the author of Vinyl Ventures: My Fifty Years at Rounder Records. Let's talk a little bit about business. You know, for 50 years in the record industry, especially as an independent, is pretty special. You know, for an old-fashioned, I use that in air quotes, label, Rounder jumped ahead in, in a couple of areas and mostly in distribution and format. You guys were early into computerization of the business side of the label. Isn't that right?
0: Yeah. When we started, I guess, because maybe because we didn't have the kind of background of doing this, we just decided to do things the way that made sense to us. Uh, we put a lot of emphasis on the liner notes early on because we liked to read when we bought records. We liked the companies that that gave liner notes. We were fortunate to have this designer from Boston University and then later people like yourself. Uh, we wanted to put out albums that were more attractive than the average albums. We wanted the business details to be handled better. We paid royalties that at least at first were a little higher than uh, than the average uh number of royalties. But about four years into the company, we realized we better start rationalizing our business uh, operations some. We had never paid any taxes, for instance. This is after four years. Uh, And we had never been on any salary. And it was at the point we decided, okay, I mean, maybe we should start uh, getting it together here. So we found a guy that had worked with a lot of local peace groups uh, in the left-wing movement in Massachusetts here in Cambridge and all and he came in, he was a trained accountant, and he came in and said, okay, well, can I see your cash receipts journal? And I said, what's that? And he said, it's the list of the people that owe you money. And I said, oh, well, we certainly have that. We wouldn't lose track of that. And uh, he, he basically you know, said, well, how about your cash disbursements journal? And uh, this and that, and we had everything that we needed. And he said, and you've never filed taxes? And we said, well, no, but we also haven't made any money because uh, we just plough everything back in again. I don't know when we first used a computer in one way or another, and uh, it was pretty rudimentary at first. Uh, but we, you know, it grew. We had a fax machine that we I would send stuff to overseas uh, distributors and so forth. There was no such thing as email for twenty-five years into the rounder. I mean, it was, I do have some emails from ninety-six. And I don't know when when the first ones were, but they were in the mid-nineties, and we were well underway by that time. But yeah, they um, it was. Quite a treat to be able to computerize the royalty system because I had done that all by hand. And we would talk mm-hmm. about hundreds of albums. I would stay up for weeks, you know, just stay up at night and be hand calculating all these royalties.
1: You were also ahead of the curve a little bit environmentally. Along with Riker Disc, you got together and, and did the, the band The Long Box campaigns, which was, you know, hugely wasteful and and cost prohibitive for the the consumer. And you also did some ambient kind of recordings that you licensed to them for the CD, which was now a new format that you guys were just going into.
0: Yeah, record disc was a real leader uh, in both of those areas. Actually, I think it was Rob Simons that was the first one to start talking about banning the box. When compact discs came out, they needed to go into record stores and record stores display bins were all 12 and a half inches wide. So they could hold an LP record. And compact discs are six inches wide. So you could kind of put them next to each other, but then they kind of run into each other. They don't stand up tall enough. So they were put into what we called long boxes that put the CD in a window up at the top. And then the bottom was just cardboard to hold it up. <laughs> and uh, we all realized that was very wasteful because nobody did anything other than throw them away. But it it caught on really quick. I think he wrote an editorial. And I remember writing an editorial for Billboard magazine. We were able to convince the industry, which, you know, it it was rational to to begin to configure stuff for the CD because it was clearly a developing and fast-growing format.
1: It's funny because the CD now seems like such a thing of the past. You know, I, I still love them because it's an hour of uninterrupted music. And streaming is great, too, for different things. So how did Rounder respond to MP3s in streaming? Because Napster certainly got every label's attention.
0: By that time, we had already been through a couple of different formats. We started with the LP. We added cassettes as an additional item. And we added eight-track tapes, mm. uh, which meant more maybe to us than some companies because with a lot of the bluegrass and country music that we did, it had an appeal to truckers, and truckers were a big audience for eight tracks. They were bigger in the southeast in general than than mm. other parts of the country, uh, and maybe in the west. Uh, but that that format didn't last long. But then along came the CD, and Ryko Disc was the leader in the CD area too. Or we licensed a couple of albums to Ryko Disc uh, as our first CDs. But we could see that it was a, a really big, uh, big incoming thing, and I. Can't we had our first CDs made in the state of Maine. Well, the first were in Japan through a recordist connection. Some people formed a uh, CD plant up near Portland. And I remember going up and putting on all this gear that would look like I was uh, in a pandemic or something. It was just all just, you know, head and cover your toe feet with booties and all this kind of stuff. It really grew as a, uh, a format. Then along some years later came digital stuff. With, and that really seemed to threaten the whole industry. I mean, it was free. You could pass it around for free anyhow. It, once you had it, if you had the simple computer, this threatened not only record companies, but also record stores in obvious ways. You know, Why, why go over to a record store and buy a physical object if you can just call it up on your computer? It, it remains something that everybody has adapted to. I think that what's one of the reasons we ended up selling the company though, is that we knew that the company would eventually adapt and it would be something that you could make money at. But there was a period in the short run where we were getting older. We had already gone through a couple of configurations. Were right. we really ready to take on yet another one full bore? Uh, or was it really time for us to to move on and maybe turn it over to some people that that would be able to better handle that. Uh, it it's it remains a, a challenge, but there is significant income coming in that way these days.
1: Well, it's interesting because there's a huge vinyl surge now uh, yeah. that I've been working with with Warner Music Group. You know, I will point to as much as I love streaming. You know, you look at a package like 1985's Jelly Roll Morton Library of Congress hmm. the box set and it's a stunning package just absolutely beautiful and it's as you know uh, integrated and involved as you want to be with a piano box that opens in a 12 by 12 book and six cds i think great and and then an, a soft cover book and it's all just it's such a, a, a beautiful piece which you certainly don't get with digital streaming
0: yeah you don't get a lot of information either i mean i, I suppose it could be there when streaming first came along, the first thing that we thought about is how are we going to get liner notes associated with this? So the people that hear this music will know who's playing the uh, bass, who's playing the drums. You know, I mean, you don't get that for the most part. I think I suppose with with a given band, they'll get their own website, and you can go there and find that kind of stuff. But but you have to dig harder than maybe is ideal.
1: Well, especially for some of your starting off music, which had a lot of commingling of musicians. And if you liked one of these guys, you could often find where else they're playing very easily and discover a whole new world of music that way. And and now it seems like it's perhaps one song at a time.
0: Right. I mean, there are advantages, though. I mean, I just heard about a band the other day that I am going to check out. And I know with some degree of confidence, I'll be able to go on YouTube and see that band as opposed to having to write them and have them mail us a cassette. Uh, And I'll get a sense of what they look like. And, uh, you know, I'll
1: I'll dig and try to see what it seems like. That kind of echoes one of my final questions. I have a couple more things to ask you. But YouTube has kind of replaced radio, hasn't it?
0: I guess. And it has that visual aspect, too. And you can, uh, I mean, radio, if a song comes on that you don't want to necessarily hear the whole song, you still have to wait till the end of it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) With YouTube, you can just jump to another thing if you want. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, CD sales crash, There's the streaming thing. Lots of changes on the horizon. And you personally, I think it was around this time, you embraced more print-oriented things with rounder books and your fascination with the Boston Redstocks, which, you know, two very old school pastimes.
0: Yeah, I mean, somewhat unrelated, but we did, from the beginning, we thought we should have some books. We just didn't get around to it for 30 years or so. Uh, the books never really caught on either. Came out with some really nice books, combination of music books. And because of my personal interest, a, a number of baseball books. Ken and Marion had no interest at all in the in the baseball books. A couple of those sold okay. Most of them didn't sell well enough. So we kind of phased out of that
1: after a while. Rounder had worked with major labels and some major label artists throughout their career to varying degrees of, of success as well as experimentation. But in 2010, you, can and Marion sell Rounder Records to the Concord Record Group. Why Concord? It, we thought it
0: was time. And so we talked to some people, a music business lawyer and John Verant, who was our president at the time, helped lead the effort to scout out different possibilities. We wanted to find somebody that would respect, wouldn't just cherry pick wouldn't just pick the top 10 artists and and then pay for those in effect and write off the rest of it and toss it into the bin. Concord had started as a small independent jazz label had the kind of background that similar background but in a different genre than, than us and uh, in, in talking to, to those those people involved they all are kind of people in a way and they seem to get it we worked out an arrangement that we we, we agreed to uh, sell the company and then work together for three years to see mm-hmm. what it was like. And that worked well. And so they had an option at the end of three years to finalize the deal, which they did. Uh, and But we also created an ongoing thing where we could continue to produce the at least the occasional album uh, that they would put out. And, and we've done uh, know, a couple dozen of those over the last, you know, between 12 and 20 or so over the last eight years.
1: So you closed up shop in Mass, and a limited number of people moved to Nashville. And writer Jeff Himes wrote, there's something about not being part of the herd that was appealing. And I'm curious, I was there at the time, you know, when the sale happened, and did any of the artists who valued, like, kind of the independent spirit of Rounder, such as Allison, did they have any concerns about this Nashville move and the major labels, that they could continue to do what they wanted to do? I imagine they did. I don't remember hearing anybody get really demonstrative
0: about it. We certainly were had that same feeling, Ken, Marion, myself, and we had a lot of people that were working with us that uh, we didn't want the place to close. We wanted them to keep us active exactly where we were and doing exactly what we had been doing. But I, I mean, I understand why they wanted to consolidate it and why Nashville made some kind of sense. We had always felt that we were stronger being away from the corrupting influences of New York or Los Angeles or Nashville. but uh, And it just gave us an, sort of a, a different take on things.
1: Well, Rounder certainly had a different take on things. And, you know, I want to wind this up with a couple of larger scale questions and, and get your thoughts on it. What role do record labels have in the world today? Is, is there one? not being actively involved. in in, them, I think that they
0: still have the same role. Uh, I think that there are, if you're a small band just starting out, you can launch yourself and begin to build up a following. But as was the case in our time, I think people were asking the same questions 40 years ago, you know, essentially, what good are you to us? Um, At first, there was no other way to do it. But 10 or 20 years into it, there was this network of distributors, and somebody could press up their own record, their first album, and, and get distributed. We had a lot, we distributed over 400 companies worth of products, and some of them only had two or three records out because they were just a, somebody that made their own record, and we just agreed to carry it. But yeah, I mean, the record companies, once they learned that lesson that we learned from Sweet Honey and The Rock, I mean, they can do promotional activity. They can help you organize conversations with, uh, you might have a publicist. You might have a promotions person. You might have a head of marketing. You should if you're going to be a successful record company and you make connections uh, and uh, get the kind of exposure that somebody is unlikely to get without that broker, in effect, representing you.
1: 50 years in the label, in the independent world anyway, is a a, a success no matter how you count it. I want to thank you for coming on. Your book is Vinyl Ventures, My 50 Years at Rounder Records, Bill Nallin. If you are a fan of this kind of music, as well as the history of the business, we'd suggest having uh, a read of Bill's book. It's great. Thank you very much for joining us, Bill. Thank
0: you, Steve. I really appreciate it. Uh, you, like many of our former employees, we do keep in touch with each other through a secret Facebook group. And uh, it's just nice to be able to continue to be in touch with so many of the people that worked uh, so well together over the years.
1: Well, you know, music freaks are always music freaks. So Right. If you would like to buy this book, please go to allmusicbooks.com and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our Deep Dive podcasts there as well and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. I'd also like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. You can check him out at fullsound.com. Finally, big ups to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout the podcasts. You can check them out at FrankieAndThePoolBoys.BandCamp.com and on all of the major streaming services. Please support local and independent writers and musicians. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an allmusicbooks.com podcast and now a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network.